Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, the title gives it away. I'm here to talk of the stories of film, and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, behind-the-scenes stories, all the bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover in this podcast, well, they're more of a mainstream leading to them than anything else. They're films I'm interested in uh, to some degree or invested in. I, I try not to punch down. I try not to do snark. I just want to celebrate the fact. I think it's really hard to make a film. I want to celebrate the fact that people have managed to get their movies over the line and out into the world. There is a very loose theme, uh, unusually, to the two films I've picked uh, in this particular episode. I don't usually link them, but I thought it'd be quite interesting to look at the two, basically, the two biggest movie stars of the 1990s and a couple of their projects that didn't quite hit the box office heights of some of their earlier work. With that in mind, I'm going to play you a clip from my favourite romantic comedy of the 1990s. I'll come to the story of this one, the other side of this. She must think I'm such a loser, lousy driving range pro. Local legend Roy Tincup McAvoy, <laughs> the best player to never hit the big time. It's an easy game, this golf. Wasn't going anywhere. Oh. It's got to be the woman. I thought you said it was a virus. Well, a woman can have the same effect. But ever since Dr. Molly Griswold got inside his head, I think I'm in love with you. What? He's been changing his whole approach. From the moment I first saw you, I knew I was through with bar girls and strippers and motorcycle chicks and... Stunned, huh? Tell me you're not at least moderately attracted to me. You have moments, Roy. Yeah, well, you tell me which ones are my moments and I'll try and duplicate them. That then was a clip from the trailer of 1996's Tin Cup, directed by Ron Shelton, who co-wrote the script as well with John Norville. Kevin Costner and Rene Russo lead the cast of this one, which also features Cheech Marin and Don Johnson amongst its ensemble. Now, there's not a huge number of uh, big Hollywood movies centred around the sport of golf. I think The Legend of Bagger Vance was one of them. Tin Cup's the only other one that instantly springs to mind, although like most of the best sporting movies, it's not actually much about the sport at all. But nonetheless, for a film and a romantic comedy about golf, it non well, sort of about golf, as discussed, it nonetheless started life with a golf tournament. Because golfing buddies Ron Shelton and John Norville had been noodling the idea of, of doing a, a golf movie at some point. And it was while watching the 1993 US Masters golf tournament that uh, a competitor by the name of Chip Beck 
played a shot with a few holes of the tournament left to go. Now, at this point, he was a few shots behind the leader, Bernard Langer. And instead of taking the aggressive attacking shot for the green, that theoretically would have been the, 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 the big gamble for Chipbeck, he played safe. He did what was known as laying up. And he, he basically played a safety shot to make sure he wouldn't risk getting a penalty. As it would happen, Bernard Langer would go on to win that particular tournament. There's a spoiler for you with Beck finishing in second place. Now, amongst those who were watching that play out were Shelton and Norville, and they got on the phone to each other in the aftermath of that and realised that they might have finally cracked their idea of what a golf film should be. Both had been adamant when they were discussing it originally that knowledge of golf was not required. I cannot claim to be a golfing expert myself. And Norville, at this point, he was a screenwriter without a credit to his name, whilst Ron Shelton was a filmmaker coming off hits such as Bull Durham, the brilliant Bull Durham with Kevin Costner, White Men Can't Jump as well with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. He was just developing a film called Cobb, which I'll briefly mention shortly, which starred Tommy Lee Jones. So, while watching this US Masters play out, Shelton gave Norville a call. And they started talking about what they'd seen and whether there was a story in there, because this this would prove to be the turning point of the project they were trying to get off the ground. That what if they could make a film about a golfer who was basically the opposite of what Chip Beck had done? Someone who took risks, whether it was the right thing to do or not. And in fact, I mean, getting utterly to the nub of the character they wanted to create, someone who was more afraid of winning than losing. Now, they did a bit more digging around and, and research, um, and that led them le left them concluding that their judgment of Chip Beck was actually unfair, that he was regarded as a very fierce competitor on the golfing circuit. But nonetheless, the seeds of this character were sown. The, the character will become Roy Tinkup McAvoy, the lead of their movie. And Shelton and Norville would ultimately describe what they came up with as a film at heart about a couple of 12-year-old boys, the character of Tin Cup, and also the character ultimately played by Don, uh, Don Johnson in the movie, uh, David Sims. The film had certainly developed as well since they, they'd had the original idea. I mean, the website golf.com did an excellent oral history, which I've drawn on a little for this particular podcast. And Shelton explained there that the original idea of this film had been um, a, a hustler with a driving range in Texas. Because, again, it goes back to that thing, a golf story for people who don't play golf, who don't even get golf. But also what Shelton wanted to make sure was they didn't want golf to be seen as a sport for rich people, which is commonly the perception of it hence starting uh starting with the hustler and the driving range and some of those ingredients would make it into the final movie Shelton did, though, in Premiere magazine in a piece in their June 1996 issue, explain that even though it had to be a film that was accessible to non-golf non-golf fans, it had to stand up for the golf to the golf community as well. They, I think of it in the what Ron Howard talked about when they were making Apollo 13, when he talked about having necessary techno babble. That there are things that are explained in Apollo 13, where you're not actually, the, the vast majority of us aren't actually supposed to understand what they're saying. They're, what they're saying is scientifically correct, but nonetheless, we just have to have the perception that they know what they're talking about. We're quite happy on the outside. So the terminology in Tin Cup would need to work for golf fans and us who didn't necessarily get everything that was being spoken about, that's fine. It's just all part and parcel of, of watching sport. 
Shelton and Norville. I mean, Norville did the first draft of the script and Shelton would come in and, uh, and, and do ultimately do the rewrite on it. But they were close collaborators on it. And they realised within 20 pages of this, as Shelton would uh, would tell an interview that popped up on rediscoverthe80s.com, that within 20 pages, this was perfect for Kevin Costner, with whom he'd worked on Bull Durham. By 1994, the, the project was coming together and it was in a place where Shelton, Norville and producer Gary Foster went off for a round of golf. They had a drink or three afterwards and decided that this was one that they really wanted to press ahead with, that they, they worked out Norville could write the film, Foster would produce it, Shelton would direct it. And Ron Shelton at this stage, he, he was making cob for the studio. He had a deal in place at Warner Brothers, as coincidentally did Kevin Costner. But in 1994, Costner was also submerged in the making of the infamous the infamous blockbuster Waterworld. Now, Waterworld, I've covered before on this podcast. I like Waterworld. It was an exhausting film to make. It was running over schedule. It was running over budget. And it did serious damage to Costner's friendship with its director, Kevin Reynolds, the second film that they'd, the third film they'd worked on together and the second they'd had a big falling out at the end of. So jumping from that film to another straight away in 19, moving on to 1995 was not going to be appealing to Costner. He was, of course, looking for projects for his Warner Brothers deal, but also his marriage was falling apart at this point. And he, he, his view, his view at that stage in his life was he, he just needed to get out the limelight for a bit. With Warner Brothers, he'd done Wire Earp with director Lawrence Kasdan, which was a project that he developed and nurtured and pushed for. That hadn't gone particularly well. He was noodling with the idea of directing again, the film that would ultimately become The Postman a couple of years later. And at the point where he was, I mean, he was committed to do Waterworld, but in terms of what to do next, the story was he reportedly had a couple of films to choose from, but crucially, he'd worked with Shelton before, and Costner's got form for going back and working with directors who he got on with and worked with before. Shelton then rang Costner once the script was was really coming together. Costner told him at this point he wasn't planning. He, he was planning to take time off. Um, he was trying to get over his marriage falling apart. He wasn't personally in the best place. Now, he knew that Norville and Shelton had been working on a golf film. Um, he wasn't an avid golfer, but as Costner would say, many interviews in the build up to the release of this one, he would go off and play once a year. He was that kind of golfer. But he agreed to read the script. His friend asked him to. He said, yeah. I'll have a look at it. And they met up a few days later and Costner was in. He just like, yep, yeah, you're right. I've got to do this. And he didn't play much golf. This is important. He knew some basics, but he loved the script with the production deals that were in place at Warner Brothers. There was a natural home for the project as well. It was going to cost about $45 million to make. Costner was still box office at this point as well. I mean, as much as there was lots of negative ink around Waterworld, it was still expected to be one of the bigger films, as it would turn out to be, of summer 1995. And thus, heading into 1995, this was a movie that was going to be moving forward. That meant that Shelton could uh, press ahead with working on the casting of it because the script had evolved into a romantic comedy with a brilliant role, uh, the, the brilliant role of Molly, Molly, uh, Dr. Molly Griswold in the film, um, who utterly goes toe to toe with Tinker McAvoy. And there were several uh, leading actors who were interested in the movie, as Shelton would describe, but didn't necessarily want to audition. Now, exactly who those were is, is unclear and who turned 
turned down the idea of auditioning is unclear. Couple of names we do know about. We don't know whether they auditioned or not. Michelle Pfeiffer was said to have been approached. Janine Turner, who had sprung up off the back of the TV show Northern Exposure and a co-starred in Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone, reportedly turned the movie down. And in the early early to mid nineties, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Rene Russo. I think Rene Russo is, is outstanding. I mean, she she'd done Free Jack, she'd done Lethal Weapon three, she'd done In the Line of Fire. She was due to do Ransom with uh, uh, reuniting with Mel Gibson on that. And her career was on the up. She was set to star in a Warner Brothers project, actually, in 1995. She was originally due to be cast in Batman Forever as the female lead opposite Michael Keaton. If uh, Should Keaton return to play the Dark Knight in that? Of course, he didn't. There was a big reboot. And when Keaton left, thus so did Rene Russo. A younger Batman came in. Warner Brothers wanted a younger love interest. Uh, and, and the whole casting ensemble of that changed. Nonetheless, she was she got the script to tink up and she was interested in it. She was nervous, um, nervous certainly about reading opposite Costner for it, but she was ha certainly happy to audition for it. Ron Shelton would admit that she hadn't been on his initial shortlist of possibles for the role, but it took five minutes into the audition to know that she was right, that R Russo and Costner, apparently there was some instant chemistry there and she was, she was duly signed up for the movie. Now, for the role of Romeo, the uh, the caddy in the film, well, John Leguizamo was reportedly considered for this one. But at this point, he was committed to making the film Executive Decision with Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. I've covered that on a previous podcast. And it was a film he reportedly tried to get out of making because he wanted the tin cup role, but no dice on that one. Uh, around 70 to 80 actors were said to have auditioned for the part for Ron Shelton. Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong fame was the first to walk into the audition. Lots and lots, uh, lots and lots followed him over the subsequent months. And it, I mean, that's how long the process was. The auditions and the casting went on for months for this one. And Marin wanted the, wanted the film, but just kind of figured, well, that's that then. But Shelton just, just never forgot him and ultimately returned to him when it came to the casting for the role. For the character of David Sims, the rival for Roy Tinker McAvoy on the golfing tour, well, it was seen as a perfect role for Alec Baldwin. Uh, Pierce Brosnan was in the running at one point, but it was such a perfect role for Alec Baldwin that they cast Alec Baldwin, apparently after Dennis Quaid had said no as well. So Baldwin signed on the, it was all set to sign on the dotted line. They were heading towards production. And at the time, he was married to Kim Bassinger and Kim Bassinger was pregnant at this point as well. And Baldwin decided the best thing to do here is to drop out. Um, and, and he dropped out very, very late in the day. This, of course, presented a fairly significant casting problem. And it was at the point where the, the, the cast and crew were assembled and, uh, and ready to shoot the movie and wondering who was going to take this role on. Now, Baldwin did recommend someone to replace him, uh, an old friend of his by the name of Don Johnson. And at this point, Don Johnson was pretty much off Hollywood's radar. That, Of course, he'd been the star of the TV series Miami Vice, but in subsequent years, his star had faded quite a lot. However, firmly in his favour was he could play golf and he was good at golf. But there, there were the cast on set unsure of, of just who was going to take one of the three lead roles in the movie. And then Johnson was ultimately announced and, and they discovered while they were already basically on location. 
Now, in June 1995, with Waterworld wrapped up, it was Variety confirmed the news that the project was definitely a go, that Costner was going to do his first sports movie since Bull Durham. There was talk at the point the project was announced in the summer of 1995 that the name of the film might yet change, um, but it also confirmed that filming was due to start on September the 15th, 1995 for a summer 1996 release. Now, by this point, it wasn't just Costner who was having some bumps. The film Cobb, which I, I, it's a really good film, Cobb, actually. It's a base, uh, the biopic of baseball star Ty Cobb with a very, very grumpy lead performance by Tommy Lee Jones in, in the film. It's one of Tommy Lee Jones's best performances. But this was a film that basically completely failed to find an audience. Um, by the sounds of it, that stung a little bit. So Costner was coming off a, a few bumps. He hadn't had a huge hit movie for a while. Shelton was also coming off a bump. And then there was the challenge of just how to put this film together, because the biggest problem they faced with the pre-production of Tin Cup was finding somewhere to film it, because you can't build a golf course on a studio set. You need to go on location and get a golf course. You also need to get a golf course that would be willing to shut down for a month whilst a load of Hollywood people trample all over it. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, Quite a lot of golf clubs just turned them down, particularly ones that were up, up and running and operating. They didn't want to they didn't want to turn away a month's worth of business. And so they ended up in Houston in the end, uh, in Kingwood and Deerwood, because what the production team realised is what they needed to find was new golf courses that hadn't been opened up yet and that's how that's how they found the courses that they did and then they brought in the golf experts to to lay the course out as if it was the US Open tournament itself that they had the flexibility at that point simply because these courses had not opened their doors to to the public while all this was going on, Costner himself was working with a golf by the name of Gary McCord, as well as Peter Costis, to get his game in shape for the movie. Because McCord was going to be the golfing expert on the set of this one, and his initial thought when he saw Costner playing golf was, he reported back to Ron Shelton, we're going to need to get someone to double all the golf shots. Costner can't do it. However, Costner put in the work. In fact, while he was on the press tour for Waterworld in Europe, he would be he would be practicing and practicing and practicing his golf. And it, there were some flaws with his swing, but they were ultimately written into the script to accommodate them. And whilst McCord's initial assessment was they were going to need a stand in, he would ultimately be persuaded and fairly quickly as well that Costner could actually do this. McCord also provided a little bit of backstory that got woven into the movie as well, that there's a, a real life story involving him that involved a trick shot, a pelican and a post. And as much as I, I mean, I don't want to spoil the film, but there is a moment in the movie that involves a trick shot and a pelican and a post. And that was drawn from Gary McCord's own life. Anyway, with the cast and crew now fully in place, the production did decamp to Texas and to Arizona, starting on the 18th of September 1995, which was the start of production. It'd take just under three months to shoot this one. It would wrap up on the 12th of December 1995 and it would prove to be a happy shoot. That, I mean, Don Johnson and Kevin Costner, for a start, would spend a lot of time together offset as well as on it, playing golf in each other's company. At this point, neither was attached. And so they found themselves with, with spare time and in each other's company quite a lot. They certainly enjoyed some heavy nights, go the stories on this particular movie. And as a result, some later than expected movies. Certainly some of the footage that was shot on Saturdays after some heavy parties on Friday nights involved a little bit of double work on the, the golf shots themselves, not the swing 
things. Whenever you see someone hitting the ball, it is that actor hitting the ball. But when you cut to the ball in the sky, that might have been someone else. Um, the premiere article that I mentioned before, it just noted that the problem here was, quote, they're having too much fun, that Johnson, Costner and Shelton in particular, they got on really well. They kept cracking each other up. Um, the pressure as well was off Costner on this one. I mean, he gave an interview in Film Review magazine's 19, uh, November 1996 issue around the time of the film's UK release, where he, he said fame hasn't been a great thing for me. And he was coming off of uh, he was coming off Waterworld that he produced as well. And he said he felt that the pressure was off on this one, that he wasn't directing the film. He wasn't producing it. He could just act. He would admit as part of that same article as well that the film came, quote, at an incredibly inconvenient time. But he added, because of Ron, making this movie has been one of the most pleasurable experiences for me, describing Ron Shelton as, quote, very good uh, medicine. The, I mean, the core ensemble got, got very much got along. Rene Russo very much as a as a key part of that. Um, Johnson, Don Johnson was, I, I mean, it was it was almost a, a degree of Hollywood rehabilitation here. And Shelton gave him latitude into how as to how he wanted to play his character, gave him a little bit of space to explore, and that certainly paid off in the final cut of the movie. If there was a problem that they were coming up against, it was that they were basically going to stage as part of the film the US Open golf tournament and to do that they needed proper golfers proper name golfers and so they called the agents up of the golfers who were riding high on the tour at the time and there were being quoted fees of $50,000 just for a single golfer to turn up and so they were stuck I mean they, they were going to offer them $600 each and in fact it was Gary McCord who had the brainwave said don't ring the golfers ring their partners, ring their wives, ring their girlfriends um, and and basically say, do, do you want to come and have dinner with Kevin Costner and Don Johnson and uh, spend a day there with the proviso that their other half will come along and play golf for a day, which is what happened. And in the end, 35 professional golf players came along to be part of Tin Cup, had a whale of a time on it as well, including former champions. I mean, people at the top of the game at that point, Corey Pavin, for instance, was the US Open champion when the film was made. Phil Mickelson, Fred Couples, they might not be big names to non-golfers, they're huge names in the golfing circuit, particularly in the 90s. Um, amongst, I mean, if there was an improviser in chief on the film, I mean, it was Cheech Marin, who was having an absolute ball with his role. And he, at one point when Corey Pavin was on set, he, he would just improvise a line, just, hey, Corey Pavin, you're my biggest fan. And at this point, Costner reportedly threw his arms up and said, geez, Cheech, are you going to steal every scene in the movie? I'd suggest based on the final cut, he certainly had a, a very good go at that. The hardest thing to shoot on the set of uh, Tin Cup or on the location of Tin Cup was the big finale. And I will say this, I don't want to spoil the film. I really don't because discovering Tin Cup is, is a real joy. The last third of the film is just outstanding absolutely outstanding that we're so used to seeing a romantic comedy and sporting movie template be followed to the absolute letter that to find a movie willing to take a little bit of a gamble with it and to go off piste a bit uh, to such triumphant effect is just so rare and I think the fact is I mean I'm recording this podcast what uh, let, let me just do a bit of 25 years after Tin Cup came out nearly and that ending still to me feels like the most distinctive of any film of its ilk of that era. The, 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 
the, the trouble of filming that ending was well, there were loads of extras that they bust in onto the course for that particular for that particular sequence. I'm really dancing around this, aren't I? Um, and the extras didn't quite know what was going on. And if you've seen the finale, you'll understand that that could be quite confusing. Shelton also realised that he had to shoot every shot lots and lots of different ways. I mean, it's almost an action movie approach to this in multiple angles, loads of coverage on every single shot just to try and make the big build-up to the final act, well, the big final act, really, as, as dramatic as humanly possible. It was a very, very long day, lots of shooting and lots of repetition just to get what they needed in the can. But they did get it in the can. And that perfect final uh, final act of the film, as it went into post-production, inevitably would be the moment where the filmmakers butted heads with the studio, that Warner Brothers looked at the way that the film was going to end and naturally hated it, that the notes were coming down from studio executives, that they wanted something very different. They wanted something far more conventional for the ending of a, a Hollywood romantic comedy. There's no other way of dressing it. And... It took Ron Shelton really having to dig his heels in and fight hard to get the version of the film that he wanted out into the open. He certainly won the battle in the end, but it was a battle. Still, Warner Brothers wasn't confident enough to put this out as an absolute high season summer release. And instead, it scheduled the release of Tin Cup in the US at least for August of 1996. It would take a little while longer to come to the UK. We wouldn't get it until October of 1996. But the release date in the US was the 16th of August. And this came just over a year after Waterworld had done okay business, but there was a feeling that it had been a disappointment. In fact, you don't have to look far on the internet to find articles about Waterworld was a huge flop, which it wasn't, but let's not let facts get in the way of that. Um, there was a feeling that this was this needed to be a Kevin Costner career rehabilitation, um, bizarrely. Um, and when the reviews came in, I mean, they were warm. Certainly they were, they were contrasting with Bull Durham. I think the vast majority of critical opinion would weight Bull Durham as the better film. I really I edge tink up but I love them both but there was a feeling that this was a strong performance of Costner he'd been nominated for a Golden Globe for his award uh, for, for his work in this in the end and that the film was was really quite smart a grown-up rom-com really in the midst of in the midst of a season where well you look at what else was around at the time this was the summer of Independence Day of the Nutty Professor of The Rock of Mission Impossible it's not a bad summer actually when you look at it Twister was in there as well and so when Tin Cup opened, it was it was the weekend of August the 16th to the 18th in the US. It did open at number one, but it opened with $10 million. And it's one of those things that Waterworld had a bigger opening and grossed more money and was seen as a disappointment. Tin Cup had a lower opening and would ultimately go on to gross what, about $75 million worldwide and was seen as, as a success. It knocked the uh, Robin Williams headlined Jack off the top of the box office when it opened. That's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Not a great film, I'd suggest. Also opening that same weekend was the Tony Scott directed The Fan, starring Wesley Snipes and Robert De Niro. The films that were loitering around in the top five, A Time to Kill was in third. Independence Day was in fifth, nearly two months after its release. And it was, I mean, the rest of the top ten included The Likes of Escape from L.A. and Matilda and Bordello of Blood had opened that weekend and Alaska and Phenomenon starring John Travolta, the one with the weird explanation thing at the end. I'm not going to go into the depths of 
that at the minute. It is worth noting um, as well in, in the midst of the box office that this was the summer. This was an Olympic summer as well. And there was a feeling in hindsight, going back to that golf.com oral history, that following the Summer Olympics and putting a sporting movie out did damage to the box office of Tin Cup. But nonetheless, I, I think it's endured. I think I, I, I mean, I watched it. I, I watched it fairly regularly, but, but I really think this stacks up as well. And I think the combination of Rene Russo and Kevin Costner is just sublime in this. And uh, I mean, in terms of other people who hit it off, well, Don Johnson and Cheech Marin were pretty much top of the list as well, that Johnson became so much of a fan of Marin's ad libs that he, he was due straight to go straight from filming Tin Cup to a TV show by the name of Nash Bridges that was about to start. And after spending a day or two with Marin, he just got on to the team behind the TV show and says, I want you to cast him alongside. And what do you know? That show would run for what? Three or four years off the back of them coming together on this movie. In the aftermath, well, Costner would start, he would take a bit of time off, but then would start preparing his next directorial outing, which would be The Postman. For Ron Shelton, he would, uh, Cobb was 1994, I said 93, didn't I? So after, uh, after Cobb had, had underperformed, Tin Cup did well enough, and he would go on to make Play It to the Bone in 1999, that would be his next film, uh, reuniting him with Woody Harrelson alongside Antonio Banderas. The one that he would go on to do that's really worth digging out is 2002's Dark Blue. I think that's a really smart film. They're starring Kurt Russell and Ving Rhames in in that one. But sadly, I mean, I, I can't help but note that Shelton and Costner have not come together for a third film. That I, I said earlier, Costner has reunited with several directors across his career. I think I'd love to see another sporting movie with the pair of them. Costner would go on to do another sports movie, this time with Sam Raimi for Love of the Game. He'd go on and do Draft Day as well. But I think that there's something in the axis of Shelton and Costner that makes for really special movies. I, for one, would love to see that again. Which brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. Just a couple of bits of admin at this point. If you like this podcast, I'm an entirely independent, I'm a, I'm a nerd in a room. I don't have a big company or anything behind me. It's just me and a not very comfortable chair, actually. Um, if you can please subscribe to this podcast, that helps me enormously. If you can leave ideally a hugely positive review, that also helps me enormously. All these things help with posh algorithms and stuff that I do not particularly understand. I think the algorithms going to get you personally but what do you know um i'd also like a shout out I, I, just to give a shout out to one of my patreon backers patreon.com slash simon brew to the excellent verbal diorama which is another podcast that tells the story of the movies i'd hugely recommend digging that out if you'd like to become a patreon supporter and like shout out yourself patreon.com slash simon brew at the point this podcast is being recorded i'm also putting the finishing touches to issue 24 of film stories magazine you can find out about all our magazines at store.filmstories.co.uk but from Kevin Costner, I'm now going to move on to the other huge movie star of the early 1990s. I'm going to tell the story of an Arnold Schwarzenegger film that didn't really hit the box office height. I'll play you a little clip. I'll come to the story the other side of this. Kind of takes the fun out of being alive, doesn't it? Tell me why I'm a threat. The Supreme Court upheld the laws against human cloning. Why kill me and not the clone? You saw him. He didn't see you. Daddy? We found him. They'll do anything to destroy the evidence. And you're the evidence. He has a wife and kid, right? What are you gonna do? Take my life back.
That then was a clip from 2000's The Sixth Day, directed by Roger Spottiswood, written by Cormac Wibberley and Marianne Wibberley, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Michael Rappaport, Tony Goldwyn, Michael Rooker, Sarah Winter and Robert Duval. And on paper, I mean, this one looked like a surefire hit. Arnold Schwarzenegger back in science fiction for the first time since uh, Total, uh, since Terminator 2 from Total Recall. And yet this would be a movie really that ultimately would be confirmation of his box office decline. And it's, I think it's pretty well known that Schwarzenegger had heart surgery just after making Batman and Robin, that Batman and Robin and Eraser came out and, and were both decent hits, really, just in terms of box office returns, but far less than his previous work of the decade. And it was True Lies at this point that was the last big, huge success that was marketed heavily under his name. Also having a bit of a time in the 1990s was uh, Mike Medavoy. Now, I'm quoting Medavoy's book quite a bit just in the telling of this story. He wrote a book called You're Only As Good As Your Next uh, Your Next One, which is his story of 100 great films, 100 good films and 100 for which I should be shot. Medavoy what had been a studio head at the likes of Orion and at TriStar, and when he left that role, he founded his production company, Phoenix Pictures, that went on in the 90s to do films like The Mirror Has Two Faces with Barbara Streisand, uh, Milos Forman's The People versus Larry Flint, Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line would follow as well. And he learned, in fact, too, in 1999, just a, a, after the release of the hugely underrated film Dick, which is, I, I, I'm trying to phrase this in a delicate way, but you really should seek dick out if you can sorry um one of the smartest one of the smartest comedies of that particular year but swallowed up in a year that oh god this isn't helping is it in in a year that had more than its fair share of just outstanding movies he too um mike medavoy would also learn that year that he had to have a heart, open heart surgery as well and then that his next film would bring him together with schwarzenegger but originally the sixth day was going down a different path now, this one was written by the wife and husband team of Marianne Wibberley and Cormac Wibberley. It was originally a script that they penned that was set 20 to 30 years in the future. It was about human cloning. This was around the time when story of Dolly the sheep. Remember, Dolly was in the headlines as well. And as as more and more headlines popped up around cloning around the, while the film was being developed and made. So and as the film continued to get rewritten, come to that shortly. The gap into the future just just started to contract. And in fact, by the time it actually got shooting, it wasn't set 20 to 30 years in the future. It was close to about 10 or something like that. Medavoy, for the first time, would actually take a producer credit on this film. And he did so because Schwarzenegger, he says in his book, asked him to produce. But also this time he wanted to get more creatively involved. He was interested in the film. I also think there's no harm ultimately in the thinking of attaching yourself to an Arnold Schwarzenegger project. But we're jumping ahead a little bit. After uh, Wibberley, the Wibberleys had put their script together and Phoenix Pictures was interested and picked it up, John Sayles came in to do punch-up work for it, a legendary rewriter as well as a brilliant, uh, a brilliant writer and director in his own right. He was doing the film Limbo around the time he was doing this. He came and did some punch-up work on the script, which introduced the Simpal doll that you may or may not have seen in the movie. He got inspiration from that from a magazine advert where you could order a doll that looks exactly exactly like your own child. So that's not scary at all. But that's where that idea came from. 
Um, the original announcement of the movie when it landed in the Hollywood trade press, though, and it was in 90, early 19, January 1999 was the first mention I could find. And that was at a point where it was set up with Phoenix Pictures. The Wibbles had written the script, but Joe Dante was announced as the director of it. Gremlins, Gremlins 2, Inner Space, all those wonderful films. And it was going to be a film with a 40 million budget. And in fact, the Variety Report says Medavoy added he was especially interested in Dante and the producers because they'd all been protagonists of indie helmer Roger Corman in their early years. All of these guys came out of Corman. What you have here is a director who has actually directed movies that have done very well. He's directed a number of commercial films, but also Dante could realise this stuff on a budget as well. I would suggest that was part and parcel of the thinking. I think Joe Dante is brilliant. Ironically, Kevin Costner was said to be one of the actors sounded out about playing the lead role of Adam Gibson in this particular movie. I would I would suggest that and, and with all due respect to all the Adams out there, you know, I love you. Um, but it's not a massively Hollywood action movie movie character. We're not in Stanley Goodspeed or Cameron Poe League of character leading that. There's no caster Troy here. But that was sort of the point. The idea of the character of Adam Gibson was he was an every man and he certainly wasn't a Hollywood action hero. But Arnold Schwarzenegger was. And coming off the back of his surgery, he'd been away from movies for a year or two. And his big comeback film was actually going to be End of Days, $105 million end of the millennium blockbuster. Quite a dark one that would have problems of its own. I'm sure I'll come to that at some point. Um, that ultimately wouldn't hit big. And that was said to be his comeback movie of sorts. It actually got him his lowest box office for a non-comedy in over a decade. Schwarzenegger had also been criticised for the levels of violence in that film but even at this point he was on the lookout for something smarter with less violence to it he was considering doing uh, a remake of the 1956 western at this point Seven Men From Now that Paul Schrader had written a script for but whilst it's not clear just when Joe Dante dropped away from this project Medavoy certainly saw an opportunity with Schwarzenegger so he, he reached out to him. They had a conversation. There was interest, but Schwarzenegger wasn't signing on the dotted line until he was happy with the script. And so Medavoy knew more money had to be invested in that department. Andrew Marlowe had just had a hit with Air Force One, for instance, and he was hired for the sum of $400,000 to do a production polish that took six weeks to do. Six weeks work, $400,000. Fair play to him. Um, the problem was, at the end of that six weeks, the script still wasn't right. So Medavoy dug into his extensive contacts book and put in a call to Daniel Petri Jr. Now, Daniel Petri Jr. had penned Beverly Hills Cop, and he'd also directed a film I've covered on this podcast before, the underrated action movie Toy Soldiers that Medavoy had, uh, had overseen when he was head of TriStar Pictures. And he called Petri Jr. in. He was uh, given free reign to change what he felt he needed needed to change. But it's worth noting, all of this was taking place. A, a lot of times when I do film stories, I, I, the, the films in question are, are developed over like a decade or something like that. Not this one. All of this was taking place in a matter of months. So Petri Jr. came in. They had a meeting with Schwarzenegger and Medavoy. They met at Schwarzenegger's Sun Valley home. And this was three months away, three months after the project first really getting its heat. Medavoy didn't want to lose that. And so it, it, the, the three of them basically knocked heads together on what would make this work. 
There was another person involved as well. Schwarzenegger's then wife, Maria Shriver, was uh, was heavily involved in this particular project, according to Medavoy's book, that she made notes on the scripts that Schwarzenegger was interested in taking on. And he took it, uh, took her advice, wrote up cue cards for creative meetings. And she was asking story questions. And Medavoy certainly praised what he called her tough love criticism, um, that it was pointed and constructive. The problem was that th- th- there was a lot of conversation going on about what would become the sixth day, but there wasn't an awful lot of sign of it moving forward fast enough. And so in the midst of all the meetings, Medavoy knew it had to get to a point where they made a decision. Are they going to do this or not? So he was loading up the other personnel for the film while all this was going on. First and foremost, for instance, he needed a director. Now, Roger Spottiswood is someone I've just recently discussed on this podcast when I covered the James Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies that came out in 1997. He'd worked with Mike Medavoy before on 1983's Under Fire. And throughout the 90s, he'd, he'd worked with big movie stars. Sylvester Stallone in Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Mel Gibson in Air America. He'd taken on a James Bond film and the Bond film had been turned around quickly and a been a huge hit as well. And so at this stage in his career, Spottiswood had an option of two films to make. He could make the next James Bond film, which would go on to be The World Is Not Enough, or he could jump over and make an Arnold Schwarzenegger blockbuster, The Sixth Day. Even though Schwarzenegger at this point hadn't signed on, it was pretty well known in the, in the trade press that this was the project he was considering making next. Medavoy, happy that Spottiswood could handle, handle big movie stars, could ha- could handle action, could handle comedy. Julia appointed Spottiswood when, when he elected to take the project on. Schwarzenegger was certainly happy with that choice. Medavoy also made a smart hire by bringing in producer John Davison, who'd worked on Robocop and Starship Troopers, because he was a producer who would come in the line produce the film, who knew how to get science fiction done and over the line. It was, I mean, the sixth day, I'll come to this shortly, was not going to be a huge budget production. I mean, it's going to be big, but not huge by the standards of Schwarzenegger movies. And so there were going to have to be 600 visual effects on this one and it was all going to have to be done for a price and John Davison was just the kind of man who could get that done. The wooing of Schwarzenegger continued. The location of the film, for instance, was at one stage going to be Toronto and they moved it to Vancouver so it'd be closer to Schwarzenegger's home. It was coming up to crunch time, though, and the pivotal chat took place in September 1999, just months before the start of production. And Schwarzenegger would ultimately explain in the press notes for the sixth day that what appealed to him about Adam Gibson was, quote, he's not the typical action hero who everyone knows right from the start will kick butt and win. Although I think we'd have a fair idea, given that Schwarzenegger was playing him. Nonetheless, this is really about the struggle of an ordinary man who, in order to save himself and his family, learns to fight back and in turn risks becoming as vicious as those pursuing him. While, even at the point in September 1999, while these conversations were going on and filming was due to start in December, the, 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 I mean, work was going on with the art department to, to put together the visual look of a futuristic movie. No way around it. This was going to require a degree of heft. Furthermore, this is where the budget problems were starting to come in as well. That, that uh, end of days had cost, what, $105 million. And th- this was going to come in at about $85 million. And as a result, they knew that they couldn't film this in the United States. It just would have been too expensive. They had to go to Canada where they could qualify for tax rebates that gave them 20% more on each dollar they spent. Schwarzenegger then, with the the location scouted, the art department in place, the rest of the personnel there, 
Schwarzenegger was was given a proposal by Mike Medavoy because Medavoy writes in his book, I could sense his doubts. His, tr- his last true breakout hit had been True Lies. He needed a hit. And he did a deal with Arnie where he said, if you're not happy with the final cut of the movie, he could oversee a cut of his own and preview that himself. They put both in front of a test audience. Whichever got the highest score would be the version that was released. Schwarzenegger said yes. Two months before filming began, Schwarzenegger said yes. He threw himself, it's worth noting as well, he threw himself into research at that point. He would talk to top scientists. He would research genetic engineering as well in preparation for bringing Adam Gibson to the big screen. Meanwhile, the task of creating the future, well, that was with production designers James Bissell and John Willett, who, I mean, they were going for the idea. We saw this with Minority Report as well. A future that's believable that it has to feel lived in, it has to feel relatable to what we're in now, but nonetheless, with some degree of future to it as well. And that was what they they basically put on screen in the end. By October 1999, with Schwarzenegger now on board, Michael Rappaport and Sarah Winter were added. December 1999 saw in the trade press Tony Goldwyn and Wendy Crewson added to the ensemble. They wanted Robert Duval to take on a pivotal role in this particular movie, that he would play Dr. Griffin Weir and Schwarzenegger would personally woo him to ask him to take the part on Duval Julie came on board but also Roger Spottis would go talked to the problem they were facing with the time the, the, the time the film was going to be set because if you remember it was originally going to be set 20 years in the future and that's when the production design work was originally targeting but Spottis would said we found ourselves in a bit of dilemma when we realised the story was taking place more like five years in the future than 20 well that they had to they had to change their design work they had to come up with what was a very near and recognisable future. I think in the end it was agreed that it was set 10, 15 years in the future, but it's never explicitly stated. Filming finally was underway. December the 6th of 1999, off they went to Canada and I mean, Mike, Roger Spottiswood, Mike Medavoy and Arnold Schwarzenegger knew that $85 million was their limit. And that whatever ideas they cat, cat, they came up with on the set, whatever sequences they were dreaming up, they knew if it was expensive, something else was going to come out of the script. That the, all the all the partners who were funding the film, Phoenix Pictures, Sony was uh, had agreed to put money in as well, that Phoenix had its production deal set up at Sony at the time, but the, the, they were stretched. Sony perhaps not, but Phoenix certainly. And so they knew they had to bring this in. They just didn't have the luxury of spending a ton more cash on the film. So one thing they invested in, and this came out of Medavoy and Spotterswood's own pockets, was $100,000 for Daniel Petrie Jr. to be on set throughout the shoot of the movie to do production rewrites on the film that there was an element that they knew there was going to be an element of robbing peter to pay paul whenever a sequence was developed or altered but nonetheless i mean this one was said to be quite a a smooth production i mean there there were challenges certainly at one point there are water tanks of a hundred thousand gallons that are used in the filming of a particular sequence that i don't want to spoil the water in that was not chlorinated to make it easier for the divers to to stay in the water 
for longer and presumably pick up more germs because that's always helpful. Um, the temperature of the water had to be constant as well. Dread to think of the bill of that. Uh, Ron Cobb, the brilliant late Ron Cobb, created uh, sort of practical whispercraft for the movie. Cars were borrowed from General Motors rather than bought. But the whole thing came in on schedule and on budget. Nothing dramatic to report there. That the filming wrapped up on the 3rd of May 2000 with Sony positioning the film for November 2000. And it, it all looked fine and dandy. But the challenges were coming in around the corner. One they hadn't seen coming. I mean, the, the, it sounds like such a tiny thing, but the success of the film, The Sixth Sense, led to a minor change in the title, that The Sixth Sense came out in August 1999 and was a sensation. And by the time that The Sixth Day was in production, the video and DVD of The Sixth Sense, remember videos, were doing great guns as well. And so originally The Sixth Day was written longhand, and it was directly as a result of the success of The Sixth Sense that it, the sixth day became the number sixth day rather than being written out S-I-X-T-H. Um, the, also, Schwarzenegger was, was doubling down on the fact that he didn't want this one sold heavily with guns, that he, he wasn't, he wasn't wanting this to be positioned as a heavy action role, that they didn't downplay the action per se in the movie, but just as he'd done with Last Action Hero, for instance, he wanted a poster that didn't have a gun on it. In fact, we get a really odd poster for the sixth day. If you've not seen it, do look it up, which is Schwarzenegger with kind of weird futuristic stuff on his face. I, I, I would suggest it doesn't quite work, although presumably they were trying to tap into the Terminator audience in doing that. Don't think that quite paid off. Nonetheless, test screenings took place of the movie and the test audiences came back with questions because there were concerns that the original ending didn't tie up all of the loose ends and the test audience wanted all of the loose ends tied up. And so here we got the, the mixture of commerce and art at work. Do you give an audience a more palatable, easier to understand ending or do you go out on a limb and, and kind of stick with what you've got? Also, if they were going to change the ending, well, that was going to cost money. And as we discussed, they just didn't have the money. And so they were there was, Medavoy reasoned, a better ending in the script. Sony was not going to punt a single extra cent into the picture. And in the end, Medavoy reasoned they had to try and change it. And he argued that in post-production, you can only change one or two things. So they went for the ending. And it was Phoenix Pictures that had to stump up the three million dollars to shoot an extra finale at Santa Monica Airport and the Sony lot that would alter the way that the sixth day concluded. Phoenix Pictures was was having a bumpy time as well. That it got some breathing space. I mean, Medavoy talks about the sleepless nights he was having in the build-up to this one in his book. And he also talks about they got some breathing space when the, one of its pictures, Urban Legends, The Final Cut, arrived in the autumn of 2000 and did decent money. But even that was sideswiped by The Exorcist getting a big screen re-release that originally had just been earmarked for, what, 100 screens. It turned out to be a big wide release that ate a sizable chunk of what Urban Legends The Final Cut had been expected to, to bring in. As Medavoy laments in his book, I didn't expect to be competing with a film that was made in the 1970s. Um, also, the competition was really hotting up in for Christmas 2000. And I mean, there was an argument that The Sixth Day sort of looked for, like it was from the wrong era, that the big movies of that Christmas, well, the ones that succeeded were The Grinch, 
Charlie's Angels, Unbreakable, Meet the Parent, Rugrats in Paris. If you've not had the pleasure of Rugrats in Paris, the opening sequence is, I would argue, the best Godfather spoof on the big screen. Um, there were other big movies as well that wouldn't do as well. Little Nicky with Adam Sandler, The Legend of Bagger Vance. I mentioned that earlier. And Red Planet. Remember Red ba Planet, the whole Battle of the Mars movies of 2000? Sony and Phoenix, and Phoenix thus had to pick which of those do you want to go against? And they figured the best what the best to position the sixth day against was The Grinch, starring Jim Carrey, directed by Ron Howard, because it argued that the people who were going to see The Sixth Day were going to be teenage boys. They were going to be the core audience. Uh, the Grinch would be playing to a far more family crowd. So what could go wrong if you positioned yourself against that? Well, it turned out The Grinch was the hit of the season, a gigantic hit, the number one movie and there was the sixth day sat side by side with it they also though as a result of the decision to go for teenage boys with the film they went for a pg-13 rating and medavoy talked about this he said it was an election year the culture police were out in force and this was a point where r-rated movies were under heavy pressure that questions were being asked at u.s government level as to violence in films and so did they really want to wade into that particular fight there was also a problem in terms of drumming up publicity in that magazines were that used to run huge features on Schwarzenegger in the 90s. Well, they weren't interested in the early 2000s that they, they couldn't get them to, to give, you know, feature the sixth day and Schwarzenegger in big spreads in these publications. And that's why, in the end, Mike Medavoy came up with doing a 30 minute footage presentation that unlocked some of that. And they did get some publicity as a result. But still, the premiere was set three weeks ahead of the US release of the movie for October the 28th at the Tokyo Film Festival. And the reviews, well, I mean, they weren't great, really. They were OK-ish. But inevitably, as soon as it started being compared to Total Recall and Terminator 2, the sixth day just wasn't coming out of it particularly well. If anything, it was um, it, it was just felt like a bit of a throwback at a point where cinema was moving on. The US release was was that that followed was bad. I mean, there's no way around it. For an eighty-five million dollar Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, the box office opening weekend of thirteen million dollars just wasn't. The, I mean, it just wasn't passing muster. In fact, the movie wouldn't even open in the top three of its week of release in the US. That The Grinch opened at number one with $55 million. Rugrats in Paris opened with $22 million. Charlie's Angels on its third week of release was in third with 13.3. Then there was The Sixth Day. And then there was Bounce, which if memory serves is Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow. I think that's right. He says without looking it up. In fifth place with $11 million. The holdovers, I mean, Little Nicky had been a surprising underperformer of the season um, I think broke Adam Sandler's winning run at the box office at that point Meet the Parents had been a huge breakout hit Remember the Titans had come in and made a fair amount of money as well and it was it, there, there it sat the sixth day as a movie that ultimately in the US would, would gross $34 million for an Arnold Schwarzenegger film overseas it would only add $61 million. its worldwide gross was $96 million. I don't think this one was massively rescued by DVD release as well, although it continues to be interesting just because it's part of Arnold Schwarzenegger's back catalogue. And I think the, the, there was an article that Variety wrote assessing the box office of the end of 2000, and it said 
The most damning thing one can say about the latest disappointment from Arnold Schwarzenegger is that few expected it to work. Buried by the Grinch in its opening weekend, the cloning action has seemed to be geared to a core audience that has disappeared. Schwarzenegger's most loyal base has moved overseas where the pick still has a good shot at redeeming himself. And as Medavoy lamented in his memoir, it would ultimately break even, but it was it was a bit of a pill to swallow. What happened next? Well, Phoenix Pictures would, for a start, ultimately end its deal with Sony. Um, quite whose decision that was is unclear. But it had got to a point where they disagreed about the film Vertical Limit, which Phoenix had come to Sony with two possible projects, the sixth day and Vertical Limit. It could only afford to fund one itself. And so Sony would ultimately get the rights to Vertical Limit. And there would be a little bit of unpleasantness between the two of them as a result of that. For Schwarzenegger, well, his next film wouldn't turn his fortunes around either. That would be collateral damage with the fugitive director, Andrew Davis. And that was the first major blockbuster that was delayed after the horrific tax of September the 11th, 2001. Schwarzenegger would go back, would go to Terminator 3, of course, around this time. But his move to politics would follow not long thereafter. And, it, and it, I mean, it leaves The Sixth Day really as a little bit of a forgotten film in his filmography. I think it's a great movie. I think it's a terrible one i just think it's it was an interesting film to choose at that point in his career and just as with last action hero when he tried to go a little bit off piece from what his fan base wanted it just didn't quite work out i will come to at last action hero again in the future though which all brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. I waffled on far too long as usual. If you want more of my waffling, it's on Twitter at Simon Brew. The entire Film Stories project is on Twitter at Film Stories Pod. Our website, filmstories.co.uk, is where you can get every weekday loads of news, loads of film story features, all sorts of bits and bobs there. On Facebook at facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline. You can buy all of our magazines at store.filmstories.co.uk at YouTube at youtube.com slash filmstories. Most important thing, as always, though, is you all look after yourselves and take care. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories. Take care. Bye-bye. Because that shot was a defining moment. And when a defining moment comes along, you define the moment or the moment defines you.